All right, welcome back to our study of the Gospel of Luke here on the Listener's Commentary. In this session, we're going to be looking at Luke 19, verses 29 through 48. And it is a big moment, both in the Gospel of Luke and in the life of Jesus. This is the moment that we have been waiting for since Luke 9.51. Luke has reminded us several times through this long middle section that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. Well, now we finally arrive. The big day is here. Jesus arrives at Jerusalem. And so this is a climactic moment in Jesus' life. It's a climactic moment in the Gospel of Luke. In the preceding context, Jesus has been in the city of Jericho, and that's the last stop before the long ascent up into Jerusalem. There in Jericho, he healed a blind man who hailed him by the strong royal title, Son of David. Jesus in Jericho ate dinner with a notorious tax collector, Zacchaeus, bringing salvation to him and to his house, he said. He's warned the people of Jericho about nationalistic conceptions of the kingdom of God. And now, here in this section, he enters into Jerusalem as a humble king, riding on a donkey, just as the prophet Zechariah in the Old Testament, Zechariah chapter 9, had foretold. His arrival is marked by conflicting emotions from within and without. By some, Jesus hailed as king. By others, he's opposed. And as for himself, there's the joy of entering Jerusalem as the long-awaited king. And there's also the sorrow of knowing that many don't recognize him as king and that their nationalistic ambitions have really put them on a collision course with Rome. Here's the way Luke tells the story. Remember, Luke had just said, coming out of the parable of the Minas, that it that Jesus was now continuing on his way up to Jerusalem, 1928. Well, in 1929, then, it says this. When he approached Bethphage and Bethany, near the mountain that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples ahead, saying, Go into the village ahead of you. There, as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. So Jesus has made the long climb from Jericho to Jerusalem. It's about a 15 mile or so climb. And they're approaching the peak of uh, the Mount of Olives. And that road from Jericho to Jerusalem is steep and long. Jericho sits about 720 feet below sea level. The Mount of Olives rises to a peak of about 2,700 feet above sea level. So it's a long, steep climb. Uh, Bethphage and Bethany that are mentioned here are two small towns in the hills east of Jerusalem. In fact, Bethany is where some friends of Jesus live, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And if you recall from John's gospel, uh, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead not too long before some of these events we're looking at here. And as they approach these towns, Jesus instructs two of his disciples to bring a donkey's colt to him. And although Luke doesn't point this out as Matthew does, this was how Zechariah describes the Messiah's entrance into Jerusalem. So Jesus getting a colt and riding it into Jerusalem is a strongly symbolic action that derived from the Old Testament prophets. In fact, Zechariah 9.9 says this, Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and endowed with salvation, 
humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so in context there in Zechariah 9, this presentation of the Messiah riding on a donkey or a colt of a donkey is contrasted with the war horse. So the king in Zechariah 9 comes riding on a donkey to bring peace, not war. And that's how Jesus conceives of his mission and his message. Jesus instructs these two disciples to get this donkey, this colt, and he tells them what to say if anyone asks them what they're doing. Here's what he says, verse 31. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say, the Lord has need of it. We're not sure exactly if Jesus had made prior arrangements with the owner or if Jesus as king and having relationships in town just assumes they'll understand and respond to that. We're not really sure, but they're just supposed to tell people the Lord has need of it and the assumption is the people will let it go. And so Jesus sends off these two disciples to retrieve the donkey's colt. And here's the way the story unfolds. Verse 32. So those who were sent left and found everything just as it had been told to them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and they threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. And so they used the cloaks almost like a, a saddle so Jesus can ride bareback on this colt as they're going to go down the hill and into Jerusalem. And Jesus sits on the colt. And verse 36, now as he was going, they were actually spreading their cloaks, that is their outer garments, on the road before him. Basically, what they're doing by that is they're giving Jesus the red carpet treatment. The spreading out of garments represents a way of showing homage to a person of high rank. You may even recall something like Jehu's welcome of, as king in 2 Kings chapter 9. And so Jesus is riding this donkey down the hill. They're laying their cloaks on it. And although it's not mentioned here, this is Palm Sunday. So where are the palm branches? Well, they're in Matthew and Mark's account of this. And so you can add that to the details, people breaking off or cutting off palm branches and waving them as a royal parade as Jesus rides his way into Jerusalem. Verse 37 says, as soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives. So they've crested the, the, the ridge line on which the Mount of Olives sits. And they're beginning to head down the western side of the, the hill with Jerusalem in full view in front of them. With the temple right before them. They're coming down the hill towards that very scene. You can Google it if you want, and you can actually get an, an image from this perspective as to what it would look like as they come down into the city. And the messianic fervor has reached fever pitch. And as they begin their descent into the city, here's what happens. The whole crowd, Luke says, of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, shouting, Blessed is the King, the one who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Notice this refrain, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, really is a quote from Psalm 118.26. It's one of the psalms that pilgrims such as these on their way to Jerusalem for Passover would have been 
singing as they as they made the long journey, as they approached the city of Jerusalem, and maybe even heading up into Jerusalem, they were, would sing these psalms of ascent. Well, this is part of this collection of psalms, and so this is on their mind. And here's Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, just as the prophet Zechariah had said. They can't help themselves, but they begin to they begin to sing and to celebrate and to shout, Blessed is the King, the one who comes in the name of the Lord. They even say, Peace in heaven and glory in the highest, which echoes the royal birth announcement clear back at the beginning of Luke. There at the beginning, the angels sang, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among people with whom he is pleased. And so they're shouting and chanting and celebrating as Jesus rides down the hill towards Jerusalem. And yet not everyone is cheering on his arrival and celebrating him as king. And not everyone wants the peace, the shalom that he can bring. Verse 39, and yet some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And Jesus replied, I tell you, if these stop speaking, the stones will cry out. And so silencing the disciples is not going to negate the fact that Jesus is king. He says, if they stop saying it, the stones will cry out. What does he mean by stones? Well, could be just stones, obviously, in the dirt in the hillside, right? Like stones on the ground. But I wonder if he doesn't mean the stones not on the ground, but the stones that are right in front of them. Like right before their eyes as they're coming to the city are the stones of the walls of the city of Jerusalem, the stones of the temple itself. That It's all made out of carved stone, right? Like that's right in front of them. And so I wonder if Jesus doesn't mean the stones so much on the ground as the stones right in front of them. In fact, in the very next paragraph, Jesus is going to mention those stones of the walls, those stones of the temple, and he's going to mention them being torn down. Um, and it seems from what Jesus says elsewhere that that has to do with his, his really being vindicated as a Messiah. And so I tend to think that's the stones he's talking about. Not only that, in Habakkuk 2.11, those very stones of the walls of Jerusalem and the temple, that, that they're the stones that cry out as witnesses against Jerusalem for their violence and injustice. And so I think Jesus is talking about not the stones on the ground, but the stones that have made the city of Jerusalem what it is. The point, however, whichever stones it's about, the point is you can't silence the testimony that Jesus is king. But Jesus' emotions in this moment are mixed. This is his royal entrance parade. Um, and it's a grand celebration, and they're shouting and testifying to his kingship, and yet, because so many, especially the leaders of Jerusalem, are bent on nationalistic visions, he knows what lies ahead for them. And so his emotions are mixed in this moment. So look what happens next as he's riding down the hill. Verse 41, when he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, if you had known on this day, even you, the conditions for peace, but now they've been hidden from your eyes for the days will come upon you when your enemies will put a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side and they will level you to the ground and throw down your children within you. They will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. 
This whole moment for Jesus is incredibly well thought out. He knows Zechariah's prophecy from Zechariah 9. He comes, uh, he knows he's coming declaring the way of peace as Zechariah prophesied. But he also knows that Jerusalem has rejected that way. And so he knows that they're on a collision course with Rome. And so he weeps over the city here and he basically forecast, predicts ahead of time, tells what's going to happen, that, that there's going to be a siege works built around their city, and eventually the whole city is going to be level, not one stone upon another. He knows that's going to happen, and it did happen. The Romans laid siege to the city of Jerusalem in 66 AD, and for three and a half years they laid siege to it until they leveled the city in AD 70. And Jesus says that ultimately, this came about because they didn't recognize that their day of visitation. That is the day that God visits his people and he's doing so in the person of Jesus. In other words, as Jesus is riding into Jerusalem, Jesus sees and Jesus knows that this is the fulfillment of God's return to his city, God's return to his people. So Jesus' royal ride into Jerusalem is both joy-filled and sorrowful. And then once Jesus arrives in the city, the very next scene Luke tells us is that Jesus carried out a further prophetic act. So you have the prophetic act of riding the donkey into the city. But then once he arrives, Jesus acts out Jeremiah's words of judgment against the temple. Look what happens. Verse 45. And Jesus entered the temple grounds and began to drive out those who were selling, saying to them, it's written, and my house will be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. Jesus' words here combine Isaiah 56, 7, my house will be called a house of prayer, and Jeremiah 7, 11, you've made it a den of robbers. In Isaiah 56, God's house is meant to be a house of prayer for all peoples, for all the nations. But here they are in the court of Gentiles, when it says he entered into the temple grounds, he's entered into the temple courtyard, the big, large courtyard around the temple proper. It was known as the court of Gentiles because it was the only place that Gentiles could go in the temple. And they've turned it into a marketplace. And so instead of being a house that draws Gentiles to God and to his wisdom and to understanding, they've turned it into a marketplace. And they're acting like the temple guarantees God's protection against any, you know, like we've got the temple and we're faithful to God. There's nothing bad that could happen to us. That's the same spirit that was going on in Jeremiah's day. Um, in Jeremiah chapter 7, the temple is being used as like a hideout for bandits and robbers. That's the idea of a den of robbers. It's like a hideout for bandits and robbers. And in Jeremiah 7, they're claiming this false sense of security. We have the temple. Babylon won't destroy us. In spite of their injustice, in spite of their wrongdoing, we're not going to be destroyed. Your words, oh, Jeremiah, are false. Babylon can't harm us. And so the temple is viewed as this, giving them this false sense of security. Well, the same is true in Jesus' day. They have this false sense of security that somehow if they can just be pure enough and holy enough um, or, or whatever, right, that, that no judgment will fall them. But in reality, judgment will fall. And Jesus knows it. And so he combines these two passages, Isaiah 56 and Jeremiah 7:11, and then chasing the, the money changers and the, the uh, marketplace people out of the temple. It's a symbolic act, again, a prophetic act. Um, that's 
that's really announcing judgment upon Jerusalem, the same kind of judgment that came in Jeremiah's day. Well, then Luke ends the story of Jesus' arrival at Jerusalem with a foreboding picture of how desperately they want to get rid of him because of what he's done. And so verse 47, and he was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests and the scribes and the leading men among the people were trying to put him to death. This is the foreboding picture we get. Jesus arrived at Jerusalem and the tension is thick. You can cut it with a knife. The, the leaders want to get rid of him because he rode into the city as king and then he pronounced and acted out judgment on the city in the spirit of Jeremiah. And yet they couldn't find anything that they might do because all the people were hanging on to his every word. And so here he is teaching in the temple each day during the week leading up to Passover. The leaders want to get rid of him. And yet they feel like they're stuck because all these people love to listen to him teach. And so this is how badly they've missed their day of visitation. Uh, they've missed it so badly, they actually want to put uh, the one, God's king, God in the flesh, they want to put him to death and get rid of him. Now, before we leave this, this little episode, let's just offer just a couple reflections. One is just the idea of the return of the king. Like that's what the Jews have been longing for for centuries is the true king to return, for, for God to deliver his people. Well, the true king has returned and he comes bringing peace and life. Um, and so this moment is the return of the king. It's the day that God has returned to his people in the person of Jesus. And yet, the second part of that is the rejection of the king. And yet, the leaders are blinded by their own agendas. They're blinded by their own ideas. And so they miss it and they reject their king, the one king who could really bring them peace and life and make all things new. And it really comes down to Jesus just didn't fit their mold. Jesus didn't fit their agenda and their goals. And so as a result, they couldn't possibly see how he was the one true king. And so it really raises the question for us, are we willing to let Jesus be king according to his vision and his way? Are we willing to set aside what we think and what we expect? Are we willing to trust him and submit to him and to follow his way? That he has come to Jerusalem and he's going to bring peace, but he's going to do it by laying down his life. That's the way of the Messiah. He's king. Even the stones know that, and yet he's a different kind of king. Are we prepared to submit to and to follow his reign?